it's good to be home, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if I could have done Ants one more week. It's very intimidating, you know, stalked by the ghosts of my past. Um, anyway, welcome to RUF. Thanks for coming. If you don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, which stands for Reformed University Fellowship. It is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus. And you all, wherever and whoever you are, and we mean that, we mean that RUF is not for one kind of person. It's for every kind of person. We want you to feel comfortable and welcome no matter what scene you're from on campus, no matter what your personal background is, and even no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity as an idea or Jesus as a person. I mean, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, um, we're really glad you're here. And maybe none of those categories feel right. You would say, D, none of the above, or C, somewhere in between all those other ones. So again, I want to say welcome. Thanks for coming. Especially if you're new, thanks for coming and checking us out. Um, just a minute. I, I'm going to totally bite it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do that. All right. So there's a part about the, uh, the helpless falling victim. Uh, <laughs> So that would be a great little prop, but it's a win. It's okay. <laughs> um, well, anyway, thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. So this semester at Large Group, we're looking at the books of Psalms and Proverbs. Um, we're studying Psalms and Proverbs in sort of a topic fashion because we think together they teach us about how to process our lives. So we're talking about processing our lives. They show us, both Psalms and Proverbs show us how to handle our emotions, how to make decisions, how to treat our relationships, and also how to live more fully, more humanly, and more humanely here and now. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're up to. Um, and along these lines, I have a really long title, as usual, that guides our thoughts. And um, I hope that everyone will commit it to memory by the end of the semester. <laughs> here it is. Sorting life. You got that part done. Uh, praying our emotions to God and applying God's wisdom to our decisions and our relationships and ourselves. And really what we're going to do is we're going to sort of take that big subtitle and divide it in half. And in the first half of the semester, we're going to look at praying our emotions to God in the Psalms. Um, and then the second half of the semester, in another mini-series, uh, we're going to look at Proverbs and applying God's wisdom to relationships and ourselves and to our decision-making. So um, we've been in the middle of Psalms. That's week four, week three of RUF. Uh, we looked first at happiness in Psalm 1, and then we looked second at um, fear in Psalm 27. And today we're going to look at, tonight we're going to look at Psalm 10, as you saw and as Brooke read. And we're going to look at the emotion of anger. Okay, anger. So start gritting your teeth now. Um, here we go. So let me just really back up a step and say we're looking at Psalms, the topic of prayer and emotion. And we're really looking at sort of the fact that I think the Psalms are very realistic. They're very about where we live, the tragedy and the wonder of where we live, and that they express well all of the emotional states that a human being can have. There is a Psalm, and many times multiple uh, Psalms for every emotion that we feel. On the other hand, I think that Psalms just aren't expressive. They also have a sculpting power, which means basically that praying through the Psalms actually forms our hearts shapes our hearts to be less divided and to speak ourselves to God more precisely. That's kind of the goal of what we're up to. So 
Um, just so you know, we looked at happiness, we looked at fear, we're looking at um, anger or hatred tonight. Um, for those of you who think we're just on an emotionally negative downturn, we're gonna look at gratitude next week, so it'll be okay. We'll make it. So let's look at let's look at anger. I need some help, so let's pray. Uh, would you pray for me and with me as we pray about connecting the angry parts of ourselves to God? Father, um, I'm thankful for this group of people. I'm thankful that uh, you moved a lot of schedules and you moved a lot of commitments and you moved a lot of hearts to be here. Um, some people have no idea why they're here and they're already regretting their decision. Uh, I pray that you'd also be with them and I pray that you'd be the people who are excited about that, excited to be here, who um, are affirming their decision. We're all in different spaces. Uh, we're in dis- different spaces with you, Jesus. Some of us know you well or are known well by you. Some of us don't. Um, and I pray that you would be with us as, and, and please help us to think hard, but also think well and give us an ease about, about um, feeling our way through anger and the ways in which you address it in Psalm 10. I pray for this wisdom. I pray, Jesus, most of all, that you be high and lifted up and that you be more believable and beautiful to our hearts, wherever they may be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so many of you know I have three children, uh, twin six-year-olds, William and Carol, and a four-year-old named Millie. Um, and we've discovered a game recently that we can all play together, which is rare when there's six and four-year-olds in the house. The card game Uno. Um, a legend. Uh, we're familiar with this game, Uno. Okay, great game. This past Saturday, uh, around dinner time, the Drew and family shuffled the Uno deck and laid out the cards, and we played a few hands of Fast and Furious Uno. There was some luck, there was some pluck, there was some chance, there was some courage involved, maybe even a little ounce of strategy in this Uno game. And like every other game of Uno, this game of Uno ended in tears and wailing. Because <laughs> this is what happens when you have four and six-year-olds and playing games. And this even happens every once in a while. This particular game ended with a child, a losing child, throwing the entire stack of cards across the living room. <laughs> Pretty typical. So in, in moments like these, especially last Saturday, I turned to try to, to cast off the blame, to think about where this came from and to blame maybe my wife or her family for temper tantrums. But then I was reminded a lot of how I was when I was little, because that's exactly what I did when I was little. Maybe some of you will be surprised by this fact, but I was a very angry child. (laughs) I remember melting down when my team nearly lost the Super Bowl. Nearly lost the Super Bowl. (laughs) I often threw my tennis racket across the court, the net, towards my opponent, which was usually my dad, who did not let me win. Um, I was hangry before most meals, uh, including snack time. <laughs> so looking back on it, um, I'm not sure exactly um, that my parents knew how to handle me, um, knew how to handle me losing it all the time or getting losing my temper all the time. And so this, we had this classic well-meaning moment of parenting when I was like in my tweens, you know, that impressionable age that you have. Um, they handed me a black plastic wiffle ball bat and told me to go outside and instructed me to, str- to swing this black bat as hard as I could into a metal pole um, <laughs> multiple times, as many times and as hard as I could, until I felt less angry. <laughs> until I had vented all of my anger. These are true stories. I can't make these up. Um, look, it wasn't because of the black plastic wiffle ball bat or the, or the basketball pole, but 
over time I learned to be less angry, um, or at least to stuff my anger deep down inside, so that most of the time I can be the opposite of raging, right? rational, cool, and maybe even detached, right? I think we all have learned this skill over time. And of course, because of this trick, sometimes I'm not even sure when I'm angry or why I'm angry, but all of a sudden I feel this sort of generalized irritation, right? This sort of posture of sarcasm, or sometimes it kind of manifests itself in a prolonged, um, depressed bitterness that I don't know where it came from. Anyway, like most of you, I now feel incredibly ashamed, embarrassed, and even afraid of my anger, perhaps more than any other emotion that I can think of. I think anger takes the cake for me. And so when I read verse, like when I read verses like verse 15 of our psalm, I get like frozen up inside. Okay, I get embarrassed for the psalmist David, and let's be honest, for the Bible. Because why in the world does it read this? I mean, look, read verse 15. David, the psalmist, prays to God, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. You see, David, the psalmist, and Psalm 10 are angry. They're feeling the adrenaline of hatred. We don't know what to do with this. We don't know how to handle this. And I would argue it's because we don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle our anger. It scares us. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed. And you see, like, David's actually not exploding. He's not venting black plastic wiffle ball bat style. Okay? He's not stuffing or burying his emotions to get rational or cool or detached. He's to, because according to a friend of mine, David Jones, stuffing our emotions is like burying uranium. It's like burying uranium waste. It'll seep out of containment and contaminate from underneath. And venting is like detonating a nuclear bomb. <laughs> There's some collateral damage, to say the least, when we vent. So instead of stuffing or venting, we see a third way here. We see a way of handling our anger, which is praying our hatred. David prays his hatred. He makes his plea before God and to God in the psalm. Look at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in trouble? That's not like a curious question. He's angry. Where is God? Show up for Pete's sake. So here we go. Verses 1 and 15 in all of Psalm 10 actually show us and invite us to pray our anger before God. To speak to God about the ways we're threatened and the wrongs that we see in the world. Because God is not ashamed of. He's not embarrassed by. God is not afraid of anger as an emotion. In fact, in a sentence, Psalm 10 tells us God uses our anger. God uses our anger to confront the injustice out there. But God also uses our anger to make us more honest inside, more honest about ourselves and more honest about God. So God uses anger in two ways. He uses us to confront the injustice out there and also to turn inward and be more honest, perhaps ruthlessly honest, about who we are and who God is. Okay, so that's where we're up to, that's where we're going. And Psalm 10 really is actually a provoking psalm. If you're reading this, I know sometimes we read it and we're still kind of catching up to REF speed, we're thinking about the day or whatever. But if you read this, you'll start to see that Psalm 10 is provoking us. It's giving this particular example from the life of David, the times of David, that's so particular that it's actually universal. It's universal enough for us to enter into 
and actually to pray our way through together. That's what we're going to look at. So Psalm 10 shows us how to pray through our anger by presenting something like a legal case. David is laying it before the judge of the universe, and he's saying, I'm angry. Let me process this with you. Let me lay it at your feet. Let me tell you what's going down. That's kind of what's going on in the psalm. So Psalm 10 lays out the how-to of anger in four distinct stages. Passionately argue each one. Okay, first, okay, verse 1. It's what I'm calling the opening plea. This is all the way on your handout, by the way. So verse 1, the opening plea, which is really to say, God, would you intervene? Would you show up? That's the opening plea. Verses 2 through 11, number 2, verses 2 through 11, we see the case for God to intervene. David is making a case for God to show up. Number 3, verses 12 through 15, we see the redoubled plea for God to intervene, to show up. He's doubling down his efforts. And fourth and finally, in verses 16 through 18, we, we see the closing argument for our confidence in God. We see the closing argument for our confidence in God in verses 16 through 18. Again, there's on your handout. I gave you I gave you the short version on the handout. So um, Jonathan and I were laughing up, uh, Fergus and I were laughing up, maybe we should have law and order music in the background, because um, it's going to get downright trial here. Um, so anyway, I've already discussed point one or stage one, verse one in the introduction. So I'm going to go ahead and begin with point two uh, of Psalm 10. And we're look at verses. We're actually going to look at verses two through eleven, and the case for God to intervene. And I'll also say that this is actually a way that, um, in this case, David is also inviting us to bring our anger to the fore to confront injustice around us and the world around us. Okay. So we're going to look at the case that God's making to God and the invitation to bring our anger out and about and towards injustice. Okay? All right. So according to Christian counselor Dan Allender, anger is our emotional reaction. So anger is an emotional reaction when something or someone moves against us. Anger is what happens when something or someone moves against us, that is, attacks us, assaults us, or even just threatens us. We get angry. That's our active or fight response. Okay? Anger is our active or fight response to a threat or attack. And we looked at this last week, but the passive like flight or freeze response is fear to an attack. Okay? So we're looking at the active, aggressive response, the fight response. Okay? And look, the threat can actually be a wrong done against us personally. It could be against our bodies. It could be something distracted about us. It could be like a future desire, it could be a present enjoyment, it could be a past position. Something's being threatened and it alarms us. Or the threat can also be against the way the world's supposed to be. It could be a violation of God's design. It could be a violation or vandalization of the way the world's supposed to be, of goodness or beauty or truth. And that can get us fired up and angry. And while other Psalms address like less righteous anger forms, like when we feel out of control, or when we feel blocked uh, from getting what we want. That's when we get angry, right? When we feel out of control, or when we feel blocked from what we get, when we're getting what we want, like maybe a personal satisfaction. Sometimes actually arguing for a needful anger here, okay? I'm really trying to talk to the anger stuffers out there, okay, like me, the people who are stuffing their anger. Everything's fine, fine, okay? Meanwhile, you're like raging with a plastic wiffle ball bat in the background. Um, <laughs> Look, part of what I'm trying to do is say, look, this is a really justified, needful example of rage. <coughs> Psalm 10 is a beautiful need for rage. 
because we're we're raging at this this suffering and uh, the suffering and the injustice this, that, at the hands of the wicked. We're getting angry at the injustice. Okay, we're getting angry about badness or ugliness or falsehood. We're getting angry at what the Bible calls being sinned against, and that's an occasion to get a little bit upset. And so let me just kind of take you through the case that that David's making about why we should get upset. It's a catalog, really. It's just like kind of trying to lay out the case of how widespread this problem is. How widespread is injustice? Okay, there are victimizers. David calls them the wicked three times, verses two, three, and four. And these wicked victimizers are hotly pursuing the poor, verse two. They're scheming, they're cursing, they're deceiving, they're oppressing, they're ambushing, they're murdering the innocent, and stealthily watching for the helpless, verse eight. They are wicked predators. They're described as lions waiting to pounce in a thicket. Okay? They are see, they're ready to seize and crush the poor and the helpless. We see that in verses 8 through 10. The wicked are also not just described by these actions, but by an attitude. They're described as prideful. They're denying the existence of punishment for evil, verse 6. They're denying God's existence, verse 4. They're denying God's ability to remember, see, or care in verse 11. So the root, he's making his case. And perhaps worst of all, this is sort of like the icing on the case cake. Okay? The wicked, the predators, the victimizers seem like they are actually right. They seem like they're right. Look at verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. All times. Notice, again, this is a really stunning contrast, how the victims are described. Not only are they getting pursued, not only are they oppressed, ambushed, deceived, seized, and crushed, they are poor, they are innocent, and they are helpless. The word helpless is used three separate times. It parallels wicked. This time it's used at the end of this chunk of verses, 8, 10, and 14. So you see this sort of what's going on. You can almost, like, if you heard this prayed out loud, it's almost like you can hear David's voice raised steadily as he rehearses this before God. Like, he starts off maybe kind of quietly murmuring, and he gets louder and louder and louder and more worked up and louder. And he's actually, even in this, in this emotional moment, there's this invitation from the psalmist to join into this right emotion. For us to also to hate wickedness. That's the call. In the words of Eugene Peterson, hate is often the first sign that we actually care. Hate is often the first time that we actually care, the first sign that we actually care. But Psalm 10 actually also invites us to look critically at our world. In reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis has a really interesting idea. He puts it plainly. No historical readjustments are here required. We're in a world we know. We even detect that the muttering and wheedling chorus of verse 7, we even detect in that muddling and wheedling chorus voices which are familiar. So he's saying, like, we can recognize what's going on here in our world. A few years ago, that kind of became really clear to me. I was reading this play, and it kind of helped me realize sort of connect the world of the Psalms to the world that we live in. The play is kind of random. Most of you probably don't even know it. It's by a playwright named Mark Medoff, and it's called When You Coming Back, Red Rider. Okay. 
So when you come in back, Red Rider is about the small diner in this sort of like removed town that actually is kind of bypassed by the highway. So very few people go there anymore. Um, and it begins like in a familiar enough scene, right? There's this kind of shorter cook named Red who's a teenager, this other teenage waitress named Angel, and they're kind of killing time, talking about life, right? No one's there in the diner. So Red's talking about how he's going to tell off his boss and leave and get out of this town. And Angel's talking about how she's on, on the rocks with her mom and wants to reconcile and doesn't know what to do. Anyway, like a few customers enter, again, normal. Regulars like Lyle, the gas station attendant, or like these two slightly wealthy strangers who are clearly going across the country, named Richard and Clarice. And then this normal, if not awkward, scene ensues. Richard, he's this new wealthy guest, right? He uncomfortably shows off, feels like he has to show off his knowledge. He has to show off, like, his big vocabulary to the, to the diner staff, to Red and Angel. And then, in the midst of sort of this awkward scene, this young couple enters and complains about needing a new car part. Again, totally normal. But then the entrance of this couple, this new couple that needs the car part, Teddy and Cheryl, okay, this is where the play and the mood of the play shifts. You see, it soon becomes clear that Teddy's wicked. He preys upon the waitstaff. He preys upon Richard. He preys upon Clarice. At first, it, be, it seems like it's relatively innocent. He puts on this terrible southern accent, and he makes uncomfortable jokes. But then it escalates as Teddy, dressed in fatigue, starts to turn um, his off-color jokes into threatening jokes. You know, the kind of thing where he says a threat and then says, just kidding. And so everyone gets more and more uncomfortable. And soon, Teddy steals Richard, the wealthy guy's keys. And when Richard demands them back, he pulls a handgun. And he fires it at Richard, more to intimidate them than to kill him. And then waving this gun around, Teddy takes control of the diner and starts demanding very personal, intimate information. He starts making ridiculous accusations. He starts mocking Red's tattoos and Angel's weight. And then things escalate when Teddy asks them to strip out of their clothes and reenact a country TV show and to, and to ogle at each other and stare at each other. And he ties everybody up, steals some money from the cash register, and leaves the diner for California. It's like a, it's a really intense play that's a super brief version. But the whole time you're thinking when you read this play, you're sort of going, what in the world? Where are the police? How can he get away with this? And I started to feel like at first afraid, but I got really, really angry reading this play. And I began to think, this could happen anywhere, at any time. This is happening in less dramatic ways, maybe, behind closed doors all the time in America. This is happening in plain sight in war-torn countries across the world. You see, injustice Injustice is just a wicked man with a weapon away. Still, it's still just a wicked man with a weapon, maybe especially that way in the 21st century. So what the Psalms are talking about is it's talking about our lives and our world. So verses 2 through 11 and their case for God intervene intend for us to get angry about injustice. And these verses naturally lead to verses 12 through 15. It's a redoubled plea for God to get involved, to show up, to call the wicked to account. This is point three, by the way, on your handout. 
So look at how the psalmist David processes his anger and invites us to deal with the injustice out there. In verse 12, he commands, he begs God, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Then in verse 12, like verse 1, he asks, Why? Why do you, God, allow wicked free reign? Why do you permit evil to happen? Why not call them to account? Why not end oppression? What's going on? And then this set of questions is not actually immediately answered and perhaps never actually answered to the psalmist's satisfaction. But then you see the psalmist fall back into what he knows. God sees. No, 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 no. God knows. No, better. God takes up the mischief and the vexation into his very hands. You can see the psalmist's faith growing even as he talks about faith, even as he prays and we pray about faith, even as the emotion rises. And it's kind of hard to capture this. In the Hebrew, the actual word choice and grammar gets more and more confused, more and more unclear. It's like he's getting more and more emotionally worked up. And then it, gets, it reaches this thunderclap of emotion in verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Here's what's amazing. Everything, even what feels like our very worst, bone-chilling, raw hatred, everything is faced and spoken before the Lord. Everything. It's an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God because we know they will be taken seriously. Again, not my words, Walter Brueggemann's words. It's an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God knowing they will be taken seriously. Ultimately, though, verse 15 is that confession, right? David, or you, or I secretly feel angry enough to wish harm on other people. It's a universal condition. We feel angry enough to want to harm someone. And that kind of anger is a sign, like a lot of anger, that we're out of control. That we are doubting God at the controls. We distrust him taking care of the universe. And we're trying to take control. Vigilante style, one broken arm wish at a time, right? That's what we're after. But in this verse alone, David actually pulls back from the precipice of self-destruction. He allows God to judge, right? He sits there and says, you, God, you, Lord, you call that evil man's wickedness to account until you find them. So he pushes it back, he pushes it back into God's lap. And here's the thing. Healthy, righteous anger, what defines that versus unrighteous, unhealthy anger, is that it lets God, it keeps God as the ultimate judge. Okay? So healthy anger allows God to be the ultimate judge, to assess the evidence, to render the verdict, to declare guilt or innocence, to give his sentencing. If we don't let God be the judge, to be angry for us, we will actually seek out revenge. Whether that looks like bodily harm, or social slander, or avoidance, or objectifying somebody in some way. Look, don't take my word for it. Take it from an expert, okay? Miroslav Volf. 
Miroslav Wolf explains why we need God's judgment. Okay, it's a very difficult doctrine, and he explains why. He's a Croatian. Okay, he grows up witnessing bystanders and friends and family members suffer and die in genocide by the Serbs in the 1990s in the Bosnian War. Okay, so he's lived this firsthand eyewitness account, and he says this: In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative: either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. And then Wolf continues, right? My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. This will be unpopular, he says, with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. Shocking. Okay? And here's why. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, Wolf says, I suggest imagining you're delivering a lecture like I actually did, he did this lecture, in a war zone. He says, among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned, then levels of the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for a birth of a thesis that human nonviolence actually corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice, if God were not angry at deception, if God did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Does that make sense? You don't have to agree. Does that make sense? It's a long quote, rather bookish. But um, let me just put it in Psalm 10's imagery. The only way you don't go out and break the arms of the wicked or become wicked yourself is to leave the ultimate punishment of evil to God. Okay? Yes, we need to give people consequences. That's not what he's saying. But he's leaving it ultimately to the one who is only righteous. That's all he is. He's never tempted by wickedness. God is never tempted by pride. And so here's what's interesting. The biblical solution to the problem of evil that, you know, like God's not powerful enough or loving enough to stop evil is that God will one day, someday come in judgment and destroy all evil. Which is amazing because we actually have that dual problem. I talk to people all the time who are struggling with both God's judgment and the problem of evil. Right? But the problem of evil actually is solved by the problem of judgment. According to Wolf in scriptures like Psalm 10, God's future judgment is also a chief motive. It's a chief motive that allows us actually to love our enemies. It allows us to forgive people and to recklessly do so because we don't have to administer justice because that's above our pay level. It gives us that humility to rest and to love. Okay, look, I know that's hard. Deep breath, we're moving on. Okay, point three. This shift to letting God ultimately weigh and sentence the wicked is what allows verses 16 through 18. 
That's what's so beautiful about this psalm. Okay? It's moving us through an idea. It's moving us through a case. So we get to the end of Psalm 10, the closing arguments for confidence in God. Point four in your outline. Okay? Look, we started with a plea for God to show up. Okay? And then eventually a redoubled of that initial plea after a case that's made now ends with an honest and hopeful confidence in God. Listen to the psalmist, right? Verses 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. But how do we know he's just not lying through his teeth? Isn't that what it feels like? He's up there and does injustice, and then at the end it's sort of like... um, and you're great, God. Right? Like that's how how is he not lying? I love I love what Brene Brown says. She has a lecture series called The Power of Vulnerability. And she affirms that there's actually this kind of resilience actually exists in real life. Okay? That the ending of Psalm 10 is not just one big lie or one big kind of wool blanket over the eyes. Brown says, according to like all this qualitative research that he does, all this extensive interviewing, that resilience comes from, and these are her words an ability to piss and moan with your perspective, okay? The ability to piss and moan with perspective. I'm sorry, the poetry was there, I couldn't leave it, I had to leave it, okay? So she says you've gotta be able to piss and moan with perspective. Because see, Psalm 10 tells us that we get radically honest about our anger, okay? We even confess bone-chilling rage. We get honest to God and we begin to see God and ourselves as we are. So it basically says when you get honest with your anger, you actually are able to finally see the whole of yourself and the whole of God. That's what resilience comes from, is that fundamental honesty with all of our emotions, especially our anger, in prayer to God. Okay, so like by honest emotional prayer, we get to see who we actually are. Like not who we actually just think we should be. I mean, a lot of our prayers are just our Sunday school best, right? Sunday, you know, penny loafers, perfect hair, lock-jawed smile, God, you're great. Amen. We get to admit, like, not only is this hard to live in this world, but we get to admit that we too could actually be wicked. We too could be wicked with a similar background, with similar role models, genetics, circumstances, environment, with similar temptations and provocations. I too could be arrogant. I too could be wicked. I love the way that Pastor John Bradford says it. By the way, when you're a pastor, you have to find role models left and right. So here's one role model for me. Okay, John Bradford, it's, a, it's the 16th century, and he's unfairly arrested and put in the Tower of London. Okay, he's re- arrested for his religious beliefs. And as he's there, he's looking through the bars of his window, and he looks down in the courtyard, and he sees this real, quote-unquote, common criminal being led to execution for something wicked he's done. And John turns to anyone who listens and, and says aloud, There, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. There, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. Do you see his fundamental self-honesty? Do you see that kind of resilient perspective that allows ourselves to see all of us and therefore worship God? And that's the second part of resilience. This resilient perspective is seeing God as he actually is. We, in order to see ourselves rightly, we actually need to see God rightly, and vice versa. We see God rightly by seeing ourselves rightly. You see, Jesus, God incarnate, the image of the invisible God, Jesus actually fulfilled this psalm. It's amazing. Psalm 10. 
He did this so that we could acknowledge all of ourselves. The dark anger, the moments of arrogant judgment, the greed, the deceit, the oppression. Look at the way that Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. Okay? He says, Jesus died for the ungodly while they were weak, while they were still sinners. Okay? He's saying, he didn't die for your Sunday school best. He died for the real you and real me. Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 53, tells us how Jesus died. He became a victim of victimizers. He became poor, innocent, helpless, and suffered under the wicked. Listen to the way that verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53 put it. He, Jesus, was oppressed, and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away, or he, the suffering servant, was taken away. Do you hear the language, the echoes of Psalm 10, even in that prediction? Separated by about a thousand years. Look, knowing Jesus in real history, that he was oppressed and he was judged for us, this belief actually leads to a radical confidence in the face of injustice out there and anger in here. Okay? I know this is really hard to hear, but so important. Because what we do when we see parts of ourselves we don't like is we stuff them. We stuff them. I stuff them with shame and fear, cotton balls of shame and fear. Or maybe we just let it out, you know, with wiffle ball explosive cracks of the bat. But what would it look like if we were like Psalm 10, David? What would it look like to pray the words of Psalm 10? So we could be still and let our anger ask God a question that we, we need to know. Are you just? God, are you just? Will you let the wicked win? And here's what's brilliant. You know what God does with that question? He actually answers it. With a gesture. He points to the cross. He points to two sticks put in a hasty-looking axe. This is how Tom Wright puts it. The cross was not the defeat of Jesus Christ at the hands of evil powers. It was the defeat of evil powers at the bleeding hands of Christ. It was the victory of weakness over strength, the victory of love over hatred. It was the victory that consisted in Jesus allowing evil to do its worst to him and never attempting to fight fight evil on its own terms. Jesus bore the weight of the world's evil. To the end, Jesus outlasted them. Do you hear that? Jesus bore the weight of the world's evil to the end. He outlasted them. That's beautiful, and that changes how we view God. God, are you just? We show up. We let the wicked win. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Father, there's a lot of deep stuff here, a lot of hard stuff here. Uh, anger is a hard emotion, and it's hard for us to think of God fully, to think of God in his justice and his mercy. Um, I pray for these students, and I pray for me as we do the math, as we connect the dots and think about um, what it means to take suffering seriously, what it means to take consequences seriously, what it means to take your incredible love and care for us seriously. I pray that you be with that process for us. 
even as we look at the, the darker sides of our heart tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.